I think one of the interesting, if not weird, things that we do uh, as the church is we try and explain the gospel or to rationalize the gospel on its most basic level, meaning uh, we try and take the super out of the supernatural out of our, of our gospel. I don't know why we do that. Maybe it's to make it easier uh, to grasp or easier to understand. Maybe it uh, we think makes it easier to believe or to receive. Uh, maybe it makes it easier for us to defend. But it seems we try and de-emphasize the supernatural, marvelous, miraculous part of our gospel. Well, the truth is tonight, our gospel is the most supernatural thing, the most supernatural event ever. In fact, it is so supernatural that it is actually mind-boggling to try and understand all of the pieces of it, all of the aspects of it. Uh, it is so awesome, so amazing that it is mind-boggling for us to try and understand. I was thinking about preparing for today. Uh, I think it is no coincidence that tonight is Halloween and, and people are focusing on mystical events and spirits and unexplainable things or mysterious powers, magic. And I, and I think folks, for some reason, marvel at those things. And all the while, the gospel is the most astounding, most astonishing, most exciting, most supernatural thing, event uh, that has ever occurred. Well, tonight we're going to look at, in our verses, uh, our gospel. We're, we're going to be instructed by Peter, but as he teaches, we're going to come and look at our gospel tonight. Our message tonight is entitled, The Victory of Jesus. The Victory of Jesus. Tonight we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 through 22. We're going to wrap up the third chapter tonight. 1 Peter chapter 3, tonight verses 16 through 22. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in the 16th verse. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile, revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation of the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we come tonight again. We praise you tonight. We stop and we thank you. We exalt you. We fix our eyes upon you. You truly are our answer. You are our hope. You are our anchor in these days and these hours. Lord, we come tonight as, as your people, redeemed 
Not of any good deed, not of any righteousness that we have, but in the righteousness of Christ given to us in faith. Lord, we praise you for that. We're thankful for such a tremendous salvation. Lord, we thank you for such a gracious Savior, Jesus. Lord, I pray as we begin to study tonight, I pray that you would speak. I pray as we look at these verses that it would be your message, your truth, that we would have understanding from your spirit and that we will be blessed in the hearing and the study of your word. Lord, I pray that it will bear much fruit. I pray that there will be a great impact in this room and in other places that hear as well. We trust it to you. Lord, we, we ask that you use it for your glory, for your namesake. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We have a lot to climb over tonight, so we're going to try and get moving very quickly to sort it all out. So very quickly, we're going to go to our verses. Now, for the context, remember, Peter has just called believers to be prepared. He actually says to always be prepared to present and to proclaim and to explain the account that has resulted in the hope that is within us. Now, that's a profound thing. That's an awesome thing. There is an account the truth of the gospel, that when we receive it, results in a hope being in us. Well, as believers, we're supposed to be ready, uh, prepared to explain that, to tell of that. Now, that means, when you think about it, that there is a truth, that the truth is knowable, and the truth is explainable. Sometimes folks say, well, you can't really explain that, or that's not really knowable. There is a truth. It is knowable, and yes, it is explainable. As believers, we're to be ready, we're to be prepared to explain the truth of our salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just before that, Peter told us that people will not like that effort. As we're preaching the gospel, as we're doing good deeds to validate the gospel, they're going to attack that effort. That's what he says before. Well, now, after that, he, after he tells us to do that, he reminds us again, this message is going to be opposed by the lost world. And so he's told us to expect it. He's told us what to do. And now he comes back and reminds us the message will be opposed by the lost world. And so understand, this is all part of the same conversation. These aren't separate conversations. We break them up as we study them. But these are all pieces, all parts of the same conversation. Let's start back in verse 15 again. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Remember that word gentleness means gentle strength and reverence. All right, moving to verse 16. And a continuation and... Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Be prepared to explain the gospel. That's verse 15. He says, do it in gentle strength, do it in humility, and keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, there's a couple of things here to see. Uh, the first thing is this. One of the main ways 
that the world tries to silence the gospel, tries to silence speakers of the gospel, proclaimers of the gospel, is by slandering them. Jesus said that would be the reality. Peter says it is the reality here. If you're going to preach the gospel, if you're going to talk about the gospel at work, if you're going to try to lead folks to Jesus Christ, one of the ways that the world attacks that is through slander. They can't stand the message. They are offended by the message, and so they attack the messenger. That's the reality. That's what happens. They take words. Think about this. They take words and they use them to tear people apart. How are we going to slow down the spread of the gospel? We'll find the messenger and we'll put out rumors. We'll, we'll put out insinuations. We'll use words and we'll tear them apart. We'll tear their reputations apart. All of that to rob away the hearers of the good news. That is what the Bible says. Jesus again, he said that would happen. Peter says this will happen. So the first thing we see, those that speak the gospel will be slandered. That's what he says. The second thing is this. You will be slandered. However, you have to live in a way that silences them. That's what he says. Now, you can expect the one, but you have to live in a way. It matters how you live. You have to live in a way that silences them. Now, be sure. No, we're not perfect. There's some folks that get the idea, I have to be perfect before I can be a witness. I have to be perfect before I can testify to the good news. No, we're not perfect. Uh, we're not free from mistakes. But listen, but we are to live in a way so radically unlike the world that their slander will not stick. Yes, it matters how we live. We have to live in a way so radically unlike the world that the slander will not stick. Notice it says, revile your good behavior in Christ. Now, I like to point this out. Sometimes we can't figure it out. Sometimes we wonder, well, why such hatred? Why such persecution? Notice it says, revile your good behavior in Christ. Do you know why the world can't stand your walking with Christ? Do you know why the world can't stand your obeying Christ? Why do they care? Why aren't they glad for it? Why do they get so upset when you decide, I'm going to walk in fellowship with Christ? Here's the reason. It convicts them. It singles them out. They're not willing to walk with Christ. They have no desire to do those things. And so when you commit to walking with Christ, it convicts them. Verse 17. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It is better to suffer for the cause of Christ than to escape suffering and serve the world's cause. That's, that's how I summarize that. It is, it is better, what the Bible says, to suffer for the cause of doing right, for the cause of, of Jesus Christ, than to escape suffering. The world says, don't have any part of suffering and serving the world's cause. That makes sense. I tell you that, you say, well, that makes sense. But wait, there's something weird here. It says this, if God should will it. That, that's that's kind of weird. Now, I'm not sure I like that. I'm not sure that fits. If you should suffer, if God should will it. Hold on a minute, they're inflicting it. What is this talking about? If God 
should will it. Well, listen to me, hear this. The gospel spreads in a world that hates the gospel through the suffering of the saints. That's what the Bible tells us. Good things happen in a world opposed to good things through the suffering of believers. That's what the Bible shows us. Good works through, most of the time, unseen ways happen through the suffering of God's people. That is the reality. The the gospel is spread at a cost. The good news goes out many times through suffering. And when we see in Scripture that suffering is intense, many times that is when the gospel, gospel spreads to its greatest extent. That's the reality. Well, that's hard to understand. So to help us understand, right here, Peter gives us the greatest example ever, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of our salvation. Through great suffering, through great evil, through great heartbreak comes our salvation. And so Peter gives us the greatest example ever. All right, let's go to verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All right, verse 18. Let me read that again. That's that's big. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. All right, starts off, verse 18 starts off, and it says, for Christ, for Christ. Now notice this, Peter likes this title of Jesus. We've already seen that in this letter. Peter likes this title of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed Savior, the Messiah, the promised remedy for sinners. That's who he says, the Christ. For Christ also died for sins. Here's what I want you to do. Tonight as we go through these rest part of these verses, I want you to think about our salvation. And we're not in any hurry to be anywhere. I'm going to go through these verses. He's going to describe the picture of our salvation, the truth of our salvation. And I want you to think about these words as we move through them. For Christ also died for sins. The payment for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Nothing less will do. The Bible says, Peter says, it's not through gold, not through perishable things, money or silver. The penalty for sin is death. But the Bible says Christ also died for sins. I know no other story where the hero's death is celebrated. For all others, now I want you to think about that. For all others, death is defeat. There's some valiant warrior, they die, that's a defeat. For all others, death is the end. They live, maybe they did great things, but they died and that is the end. For all others, death is shame. But understand, for us, death is the start. Sin is paid for in death. Chains are broken in death. Redemption is secured in death. Atonement is purchased in death. And so the Bible says Christ died for sins. 
Now, whose sin? I, I, I like to tell you this every time I can. Whose sin did he die for? Here's the answer. Anyone who sins. There is no one who sins, who needs a Savior for sin, who is left without the remedy for sinners. Christ dies for sins. Any person that sins has a remedy in Jesus Christ. He dies for sins. Then it says this. It goes on. Once for all. Once for all. Jesus' death Understand, here's what it means. On the cross is the full and final payment for sin. Now, this is good news. Jesus' death on the cross is the full and final payment for sin. Now, what that means is there is nothing else required. What that means is there's not another death that is coming. What it means is another payment is unnecessary. Once and for all. Now, while you're thinking about that, I want you to think about this. How can the sins of all times be paid for in one event? Sometimes I like to think about crazy stuff. How can the sins of all times be paid for in a singular event? You ever think about that? Today, sins are still being committed. Sins are still multiplying today. How does that make sense that the sins of all time were paid for in a singular event? Now, you want to talk about supernatural tonight, think about this. Friend, that is possible only in the reality that because Jesus is the perfect lamb, he's able to pay for sin, but it's also because Jesus is the eternal lamb. And I want to tell you, only a Savior outside of time could pay for the sins of all time. That's a crazy thing. That's an awesome thing. Only Jesus could pay for sin as the perfect lamb. He could only pay for it for all time because he's the eternal lamb. That is supernaturally crazy, mind-blowing. And that's just one fragment. That's our Jesus. Verse goes on and says, the just for the unjust. Some translations say the righteous for the unrighteous. Now that's the example Peter is holding up. How is it good to suffer for doing what is right? How is it good to endure suffering for proclaiming the gospel for these folks? How can you stand for that? How can you endure that? Peter says, look to Jesus. That's what he says. The example is Jesus. Jesus is the example. The just died for the unjust. And in doing so, we have a living hope. The just for the unjust. The righteous for the unrighteous. A few days ago, I said, we have a gospel of the conjunction, but. Well, tonight we have a gospel of the word for. Our gospel is, is the gospel of four. Jesus died for sin. Jesus died for sinners. For God so loved the world that Jesus died in your place for you. He died in place of, of me, for me. Jesus died on behalf of the unjust for. He died on behalf of the unrighteous for the unrighteous. 
the one for the other, the lamb for the sinners, the just for the unjust. Praise the Lord. Jesus dies for me and for you. Then it says this, so that he might bring us to God, so that he might bring us to God. Now, I mentioned this a couple times. As I study, as I preach, I try to find one verse, Gospels, a single verse that will tell you the Gospel. This may be another one. Verse 18 may be another one verse Gospel. Jesus died for sins, the just for the unjust, that we might be, here's what it says, brought to God. Having been redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ, we can now be, we are now restored in our relationship with a holy God. Having been made righteous, wearing the righteousness of Jesus, we can now have fellowship with God. Listen, that's the gospel. That's why Jesus comes. That's why he goes to the cross carrying our sin, that we would have peace with God, that he would bring us to God. All right, the next section of verses. Let me just tell you some stuff. They are complicated. They are disagreed upon. These are some of the most debated verses in the New Testament. You're going, well, I better read ahead. What's this? These are some of the most debated verses in the New Testament. Let me tell you this. Yet they are here, and they are here for a reason. And as they are here, God has something to say. I want to tell you, I think he has something to say tonight in these verses. And so let's look at the verses. The end of verse 18 says, having been put to death in the flesh, having been put to death in the flesh. This is easy. It's Jesus' sacrificial death for sin. Be sure Jesus actually physically died for sin. There's some say, well, it wasn't an actual death. It was symbolic. No, Jesus actually died paying the penalty for sin, he actually dies. But then it says, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, there's some folks that say Jesus was made alive by the Holy Spirit at the resurrection. Now, that is true, talking about made physically alive at the resurrection. That could be what it's talking about. It's probably unlikely right here. In the Spirit right here is not talking about the Holy Spirit, but talking about his spirit, meaning his spirit, though he was dead in the flesh, it was never dead. His spirit never died. Jesus, listen to me, never stopped, never ceased to be spiritually alive. Jesus never had to be born again. He never was born again spiritually. Jesus is life. He is the giver of life. He is life eternal and without end. And so though he paid for sin, actually physically dying, he never spiritually died. That's a big thing, all right? Going to verse 19. In which, he also, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now here's a heavily debated verse. What did he do? Heavily debated verse. What does this mean? To help us out, let me just break down some words here so we can piece this together. The word went means, translates, the original language, to go on a trip. So when he went, he went somewhere, he, he went on a trip. It is to go. 
Now, some folks say that he preached through Noah. We're going to get there in the, in the verses as he built the ark. So as Noah is building the ark, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness, that it was Jesus himself that preached through Noah to the disobedient souls of that day. Now that may very well have been true, but that's not probably not the case in these verses. Notice this, it doesn't say that Jesus was present somewhere, it says that Jesus went somewhere. So that may be true, but it's probably not the case right here. It says, and made proclamation. Now, I think this is the most telling thing of the whole thing, the word proclamation. The word proclamation is very interesting. It's a specific word that means to announce. An announcement was made, to make an announcement. It's not the word for evangelize. It's not the word for preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, tell the gospel. There are some folks that say he went to the people that died in the flood and he preached the gospel, giving them another chance to be saved. They say because they didn't get to hear, they lived in wicked days, that he goes to those folks and he preaches the gospel, giving them another chance to be saved. There are some that say this means that there will be other chances to be saved even in these days after death. Listen, there are folks that believe that. There's folks that teach that. There'll be a chance to be saved after death. There'll be another chance if you miss this chance. Listen to me tonight. Be sure. That is not true. That has never been the case. That is why the gospel is preached with urgency right now. That's why Peter's urgent. That's why Paul was urgent. That's why Jesus says, compel them. Go to the hedgerows. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for man once to die and then his judgment. So there's not going to be another chance. That's not what this is saying. The word here for prison means a cage or kept. They are kept. All right, let's go to verse 20 now. Who once, those folks kept, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, verse 20 shows us the patience of God. These prisoners were kept, that are kept now in this verse, were disobedient. That's what it says. For 120 years during the, the building of the ark, the construction of the ark, only eight folks were saved. Now, I thought, I thought about that. That sounds crazy. As the ark is being built, there's not anybody else saved. As the ark is rising up, there's not anybody else that says, what's this about? And here's the message of, of, of God's, uh, God's faithfulness to people that would repent. Now, the question now is this. So who are these that are kept? Who are these that are kept? Some folks say that these are fallen angels, demons, that they are the vilest of offenders. Some say these are the ones that are found in the book of Revelation uh, that will be turned out during a specific time. Others say these are the demons, the fallen angels that are described in the book of Jude. Listen, and it could be. These that are kept could be fallen angels, kept for a time in Revelation to be released, described in the book of Jude. Other folks say, however, these were people 
who were rebellious and rejected God during this time. During those years of the building of the ark, these were people who rejected God. Here's what I would tell you, and it could be that as well. It could be that as well. Here's the point. Listen very carefully. All right, stay with me. As Jesus dies for sin, and as Jesus pays for sin, the Bible tells us here's what we do know. He goes to these whoever they are and announces to them not an offering of redemption, not another chance to be saved. He goes to these folks, whoever they are, and he announces he had won. He announces to them, sin, the great enemy of man, has been paid for. He announces the lamb has prevailed and atonement is made. What an awesome announcement. Jesus has won. All right, we're not out of the woods yet. Going to verse 21. Corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, corresponding to that, translates like that, just like that, corresponding to that. Now watch this. Eight people were in the ark. They were immersed in water, the water of God's judgment, and they are held in the ark. That's the picture here. That's what he brings to mind here. Eight people are saved. They are in the water of God's judgment, and they are held in the ark. They were saved from the judgment of God being immersed in the ark. And so Peter comes along right here, and he says, like that, baptism now saves you. Now I want you to stay with me. Be careful. Entire false gospels have sprung up from wrongly interpreting this. Entire false gospels. Listen, we know tonight no work of man saves us. We know tonight no act adds to or is necessary for our salvation. We know that is completed in the finished work of our Savior Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Let me tell you what that means. That means this. We are not saved in baptism, the act of baptism. We're not saved in the act of baptism. Now, what that means is this. Listen to me. Infant baptism is meaningless at best and slanderous at worst. We're not saved in any work of man. We're not saved in anything we might do. There's no religious practice that saves us. That means this. Baptism as a necessary part of salvation. Are you listening to me tonight? It is unbiblical and it is not our gospel. So what about this? So what is this saying? Baptism now saves you. Okay, let's go back to it. Go back to the words, corresponding, corresponding to that. This is where we're going to understand this. Corresponding to that, like that, the word baptism in the Greek translates immersion. And so like they were immersed in the ark and saved from God's judgment, like that we are immersed in Jesus. He is our ark, and in him we are saved. Now you say, well, I don't know about that. Well, look, he even tries to explain it. Not the act of being in water. It's not the washing off of dirt. 
It wasn't from the water, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, all right, stay with me. Do you see that's our gospel? Do you see that's what a faith response to Jesus is? It is knowing our sinfulness and knowing our plight in sin, we appeal to God through the work of Jesus, the risen Savior for sin. You understand that's exactly our gospel? I understand I'm a sinner. I understand I've earned a punishment. I understand I can do nothing about it. No religious work. No good deed will help me. And so I appeal to God, God, my, my, my righteousness is ruined. I have no righteousness. And I appeal to you for yours. Lord, save me. Lord, I'm unjust. I'm unrighteous. I have no hope of my own. And I appeal to you. I turn to you. All right, verse 22. The, the end of verse 21 says this. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This section ends with this. Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Notice here, Jesus is the example. If you suffer for good, look to Jesus. He is the example. Notice here, Jesus is the ark, the way that we are saved. Appeal to him, be immersed in his ark. He will deliver and save you. Jesus is the ark. But then when we get to verse 22, here's what I see. Jesus is the example. Yes, Jesus is the ark. Praise the Lord, yes. But when I get to verse 22, here's what I see. Jesus is the victory. Jesus is the victory. Notice earlier, he says Christ. And we see that pattern all the way through so far in verse 15, but sanctify Christ in your hearts. He doesn't say Jesus, but sanctify Christ in your hearts. Verse 18, for Christ died for sins. We know he's talking about Jesus. He uses the title, for Christ died for sins. But now notice as he finishes up verse 21 and heads to verse 22, he says this, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. You see, he had learned of the Christ. He had studied the Christ. He had been promised the Christ. He needed the Christ. But I want you to see tonight, Jesus was different. You see, Jesus, he knew. Jesus, he had heard him teach. Jesus, he had walked with him. He had been fishing with him. He ate with Jesus. Jesus called him. Jesus trained him. You see, he knew the Christ must suffer. Isaiah told him of that. But Jesus was different. He saw Jesus as he suffered. He knew that the Christ would be the Lamb of God to pay for sin. He had been trained in that. But you see, Jesus was different because he saw his blood run down for the forgiveness of sin, the very Lamb of God. The Christ he knew would die, but Jesus was different. He saw Jesus as he breathed his last. He saw Jesus as he bowed his head and surrendered his spirit in death. Oh, listen to me. Praise the Lord for the Christ. But to Peter, Jesus was different. And he sees him, he saw him as he died. But the story doesn't end in death. 
And so Peter says, my friend Jesus, yes, he is the Christ. But now let me tell you, my friend Jesus, I knew him and I know him and I saw him and he lives even still. And he's proclaimed to the angels his victory. He's defeated the principalities and the powers on earth. And now my friend Jesus has gone to heaven and he sits at the hand of victory. In Jesus is the victory. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In Jesus is the victory. Can you imagine the downtrodden people that get this letter? Oh, we got an example in Jesus. Oh, we got a Savior and Ark in Jesus. But in Jesus, we have the victory. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come. We praise you. We thank you, oh, for this picture of Jesus. Oh, for this picture of our redemption. Oh, for this picture of victory we have. Not of any act, not of any religious deed or doing, but in the love and the grace of a, of a merciful God who sends his only begotten son and he pays for it himself and offers it to us in gracious love. Lord, I pray on this day that we see you I pray, Lord, that those that maybe haven't seen you like this in the past and do not know you as their Savior, that tonight they would trust you, they would turn to you. I pray for all of us both alike that we would exalt you. We would lift up your name. What a Savior. What a Savior. Lord, I pray for this time of response, this time of invitation. I pray that you would work. I pray for those that are listening in this room, those that are listening in places we may never know. Lord, I pray that the gospel would bear fruit tonight, this night, this message for your name and for your glory. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna close with a time of response, a time of invitation. And I wanna tell you the, the gracious savior of these verses, the friend of Peter, the Christ, loves you, knows you, sees you, desires you, has made a way for you in the cross of Calvary. If you'll trust him tonight, he'll save you. If you'll turn to him in faith, Lord, I'm a sinner and I know it. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. But I trust you're the remedy for it. You're the Savior for it. And I turn to you and I call upon you as my Savior. I ask you to save me. The Bible says he'll do it tonight. He'll do it tonight. No religious work you have to add to it. Can't add to it. He'll save you tonight. If you've never done that, do it tonight. If you've never settled that, settle it tonight. He'll save you tonight. Maybe you're here and you're looking for a church home and you've prayed about it. You believe God has led you here. You come as well. Together we'll, we'll preach his good news. We'll stand on his truth till he comes again. Maybe you're here and you've made a decision but never fought on believer's baptism. Does not save us. It's a picture of our salvation, a picture of our gospel, what happens in and through Jesus. You come. It'll be a great day of celebration pointing to our Savior, Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight on this Monday night. Life is rushed. Life is busy. Maybe you're facing all sorts of things no one even knows. Maybe you want to come pray at an altar. Maybe you want to come pray with me. I'm going to ask that no one would stir about, no one would head for an exit. You pray for those who are making decisions. If God has spoken to you, you step out and you come on. I'll meet you here.